0: Chapter 11 of Tattlings of a Retired Politician This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Bill. You can find me on Instagram. Chapter 11 Tattlings of a Retired Politician by Forrest Chrissy Paying the Fiddler. Broken Straw Ranch, 19-something. Dear Ned, there's nothing like the gig of time to take the kinks out of a crooked politician. Somehow, I can't quite manage to get over the notion that sooner or later we have to pay the Fiddler in politics as well as in other things. However, there's a lot of powerful, cunning men who have made a big killing in politics and scored their heaviest hits by doing dirt to every man that came near enough to get tarred with their stick. These fellows don't believe in the Fiddler Doctrine. They seem to hold out that so long as they keep their batting average up to a certain pitch, they're entitled to a clean bill of exemption ned i can't succeed that way you've played i spy enough in the village horse sheds to understand what i mean when i say that the man who makes his way in the game of politics by lying cheating and throwing down his friends isn't justified in expecting to hear the final call of all in free sooner or later he'll have to take his turn at being it while the others are getting even with him. Those political scamps who climb high to high places on the shoulders of men they've betrayed and then expect to escape scot-free, remind me of old Two's defence, of the will left by the infidel Keth back in Busty, the way in which the old man distributed his property, which was the largest in the hometown didn't appeal to the natural hares in spite of the fact that during his lifetime they had consistently impressed the old codger with the fact that they regarded him as a moral monstrosity whose fierce calling and election were already sealed. Consequently the bereaved hares went up to the country seat and took counsel of a young sprig of a lawyer who had reputation of being uncommonly foxy, and they came out of the conference smiling, for he told them that it would be dead easy to break the will on the ground that the old man was of unsound mind when he made it. But how will you prove that? One of the heirs asked. I guess there isn't a court or jury in this region. The lawyer rep- had replied that won't accept the old man's infidelity as proof of his mental unsoundness. All we've got to do is establish that fact; the religious sentiment of the community will do the rest. But one old friend of the deceased, who was a large beneficiary under the terms of the will, had all managed to to look over his interest in the case. Now, old Benage was as sharp as a shagbark hickory, but as sharp as a copper's ads. While he knew about all the law that had ever been introduced into cowbell country, he paid a heap more attention to the jury than he did to the law. He didn't introduce a particle of evidence to rebut or soften to establish the fact the rank infidelity of the deceased and his client finally took fright and ventured to remind him of this oversight but benage was a hard-bitted crusty old no and simply told his client to shut up right up to the last words of old to speech to the jury he ignored the main issue then he disposed of it in these words. "'Gentlemen, it has been alleged that the testator was an infidel, I it. I don't hold his view of the deity or the future, and neither do you. But as I look onto your honest and intelligent faces—' I am willing to leave you the question. Shall the maker of this last testament and testament be judged crazy simply because he did not hold the persons who are seeking such a verdict, that through his lifetime a man may considerately break the Ten Commandments, smash the royal law into flinders, and on his deathbed assign to the Saviour, and cheat the devil out of his honest dues? took the jury just ten minutes to bring in the verdict upholding the soundness of the will. And, Ned, I can't escape the conclusion that there is a law in the eternal fitness of things that brings the scalabag of politics around to face the music and settle with the fiddler, the tunes to which he has danced, just as you say the Hun. Bill has had to settle in your bailiwick. Whenever I hear anything said about the law of compensation in politics, my mind goes back to the career of Judge Worthy Milring back in Coon County. That's while you were at college, and so our fresh hearsay recollection of the affair. A finer looker than the old judge never wore mine or handed down an opinion. It was as tall and toppy as an elm by a meadow brook, and judicial dignity hung about him like the halo of a saint in the family Bible. When he rubbed his spectacles with a silk handkerchief, after a closing argument, you felt that the voice of the justice was about to utter the last word of the subject. But just the same, every man who was mixed up in politics in his circuit knew in his old heart that the old judge had thrown down his best friends, sacrificed the men who had made him a political power, and smilingly lifted the scalps of the veterans who had been assigned in fighting fire for him. Just previous to each judicial election, there was a murmur of revolt. But the old judge smiled on the younger men of the party, the ones who really did the work, played the gallant, at a few church sociables throughout his circuit and carried the convention as easily as he decided a case. This went on until his long hair was white as his old-fashioned choker, and all thoughts of unseating him had practically been abandoned by the men who had felt his stiletto under their political ribs. One day, however, a red-headed lawyer came to court to defend a young woman against a suit brought by her husband for the custody of the little boy. The man looked as if he'd steal the pennies out of the child's bank and beat the mother for protesting against it. You could set dozens such heads on his bottom of an old-fashioned sub-bucket and still have enough room to play checkers. There is no denying that the woman was uncommonly comely, but the courts in our state hadn't held this was proof of bad character. However, the husband had enough of his relatives on the stand to make out a circumstantial case against her. While his lawyer made a strong point of her handsome face and her alleged weakness to flattery, insinuating that her ability to sham would make her a success on the stage. His whole contention was that the mother was an unfit person to have the custody of their child. There was a hush in the court when the judge polished his spectacles and gave his decision, ordering the child to be taken from the mother and given into the hands of the grandmother on the father's side. Then the boy and the woman arose and walked down the aisle, a strange, unsteady lights in her eyes reaching the bench and confronting at one end the sheriff's room at the other the judge's chamber she dropped down and gazed vacantly about the sheriff offered the little fellow an apple and as the child stepped forwardly shyly and took it picked him up and dodged quietly into the private room snapping the lock behind him this aroused the woman from her stupor. She leaped forward and fairly flung herself against the door. Just then, the old judge stepped to the room of his chamber. With a cry, the mother made a rush for him, but again threw herself against a closed door. She was beside herself when the bailiffs and her lawyer led her away. I never heard what became of her, but I can give you a pertinent not particulars about the red-headed lawyer and old judge Milring. the papers commented at length about the painful incident but praised the clearly judicial and impartial nature of the decision and added that the county was fortunate in being able to furnish the circuit bench with so distinguished and scholarly a jurist one that would be an ornament to the highest tribunal in the land that was the first gun in the judicial campaign, but not the last. The red-headed lawyer had his dander up, but kept it under cover and started out quietly to make things merry for the old judge. But that unsuspecting ornament of the bench simply continued in the even tenor of his way, living in the life of a solitary and scholarly old widow in the mansion on the, of the hill cared about for by a half-dead housekeeper, whose smile would have soured fresh milk. Secretly, the lawyer organized into a band of insurgents, a choice lot of men who had been tricked, shammed, and deserted by the judge in years past. Then he bought the blade, the new country-county seat paper, published in the judge's own town. When he had acquired the property, he coyly suggested to the judge that, as he needed little ready money, just then he would be willing to sell a two-thirds interest. The spade caught the judge instantly, and he drew his check for the required amount, charging it up to campaign expenses. Then he went into the city for a few days rest. He liked to come in contact with the bright minds, he said, and keep in touch with the great world of affairs. It kept him from getting rusty. There was no open contest against the judge in his own county. The new paper printed a few columns of conventional praise of our distinguished and learned fellow townsmen. And the red-headed lawyer rode the country picking out the delegates to the judicial convention. He didn't even claim directly to represent the judge and even went so far as to say that he had no objection to letting any sorehead in on the delegation who cared to go to the convention. This was winked at as a magnanimous and clever thing and an amazing number of soreheads took the advantage of his generosity. The convention met on Friday, the regular publication day of the Blade being Thursday. Somehow the papers got into the post office uncommonly early that day, and in a few years the county was in an uproar, for the news spread like a prairie fire after a drought. In headlines printed in black handbill type, The editor announced that it had been discovered that the Hon Worthy Milring was the husband of a young woman, 40 years his junior, and the father of a little daughter. The wife was the daughter of a former housekeeper of the judicial mansion. In proof of the existence of the wife, the paper published face-smile reproduction of a registered letter received signed by the Mrs. Mooring, No comments were made aside from the simple statement that it was feared that the neighbors and political supporters of the venerable jurist would resent the fact that they had not been taken more intimately to the confidence of their distinguished fellow townsmen. That convention was the hottest that ever convened in the county. The old judge was full of fight he made a bold dash to stampede the younger delegates. Just come over to the hotel, he told them. Meet my wife, and then if you blame me, vote against me. They accepted the challenge, met the woman, and went back to fight for the judge. She was a city woman with a certain social grace and cleverness that dazzled the young farmers. And for a time, it looked as if the judge's high play would win out for him. But a good many delegates had brought their wives to town with them, to just to do a little shopping, and somehow the red headed lawyer had managed to meet most of these women and drop a word with them, and incidentally the whole town were generally supplied with handbills given the text of judges' decisions, in which he had taken the child from the mother on the grounds of unwholesome home influences. More than one delegate was called out of that convention by his wife, but somehow not a great many women called upon the judge's wife that first day of her appearance in local society. In the convention, the fight was something fierce. The balloting hung unto the night, and the insurgents forced an adjournment. That gave the wives of the delegates a chance to express their sentiments. And The next day on the 89th ballot there was a break in the judges forces and the nomination went to a dark horse candidate who was as awkward as a pip-tucky but straight and fairly able. After that the old judge grew thinner and frailer. He held his high just as high as ever but when he took his dignified walks about time. It was hard work for him to do. His deep eyes sank farther back into the caverns of, behind his bushy brows. Before the summer was over, he took to his bed and, in the language of the red-headed lawyer, turned up his toes and submitted to the internal decree of judicial and justice rep- retribution. The politicians who, like the old judge, made a practice of throwing dead cans in one other people's wells are divided into two classes. First, they're not allowed to draw all the water they want themselves. These are mean enough, but they don't trot in the same class with those who do it just for pure cussedness, poisoning the waters from which their friends must drink, simply because they are natural political degenerates. And it's my experience that this latter class was mainly made up of the men who prate loudest about the political purity. It's my notion that the politicians of this stripe generally get their taste of poisoned waters before they're through with the game. And I always take a heap of comfort every time I see one of them laid out for good. Tell the wife that if she, she'll cur you of politics, and come out west with you. There's a chance for you to make money here and get more solid enjoyment than in holding down the fattest job in the old state. Yours as ever, William Bradley. End of chapter 11. Recording by Bill. Instagram social account Billiam113.